Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast dedicated to the growth and development and advancement of teamwork, leadership, and culture, or what I call the TLC of business. Hi, my name is Greg Gregory, certified speaking professional, host, founder of the Teamwork Advantage, where once a week we bring you guests that can bring you ideas that you can implement immediately in your personal life as well as your professional life to help in that advancement. Today is no exception. We're joined today by another professional athlete on our team, and uh, it's a little bit different. So there's uh, some thoughts about this you might want to think about as we move on. Cam F. Awesome is a keynote speaker and diversity consultant today, as well as an Olympic heavyweight boxer after becoming the winningest boxer in USA history. Cam hung up his gloves and packed up the, uh, picked up the microphone, I should say. And today he conducts diversity training around the topic of culture, competence, and shares his lessons he learned while traveling and working as captain of the USA national basketball team to over 30 countries. You think of boxing as a team sport? Most people don't. Cam I. Fossum is going to talk to us today about how it is. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, Cam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the introduction. You're like my own Michael Buffer this morning. <laughs> I always try to do that for everybody. Uh, doing the little reading and background on you, it's kind of fun to learn about you. And one of the things I read was that you, uh, you, you picked up boxing when you were younger to lose weight. Yeah. Uh, so I have always, always had a real unhealthy relationship with food growing up. I'm a, an emotional eater, uh, all emotions. And, <laughs> and, uh, it was, it, was before, it was coming up to my senior year in high school. And when you're watching TV back in the day and you're in high school, prom is the biggest deal in the world. It's basically every high schooler's Super Bowl. It only happens every four years. Well, it happens your one, four years in high school. And I realized I was overweight. I didn't have any confidence. I was getting picked on. So I thought if I can join the boxing gym, I didn't want to become a boxer. I just want to do the workouts because I thought I would end up looking like a boxer. And if I looked like a boxer, would, would means I'd lose weight, people would stop picking on me because I'd look scarier and <laughs> I would get a date to prom. You didn't think about the idea that you might scare the girls off? No, no. I, 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 I saw pictures of LL Cool J. He was ripped. Girls weren't scared of him. Okay. So in my mind, I would just look like LL Cool J. Uh, so I, L by I the way, LL Cool J is still ripped. <laughs> right, right. He is killing it. And he's got the, uh, I think I read somewhere he has the uh, uh, best uh, abs in Hollywood. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, weirdly, have you seen Lenny Kravitz lately? Yeah. Dude is ripped. He he's, lives in the Bahamas, only eats what he grows off of his own island uh, on his property. <laughs> and he's 57 and jacked. Man, I need to learn how to play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you wanted to get into the shape and then what was it that actually took you beyond just doing the workout, trying to get a date for prom to get you into boxing? Uh, so honestly, I, I realized, so I went to the gym every day 
and I was obsessed with losing this weight because I had like a time clock. And I was in the, I was the first person in the gym, last person in the gym every day. You would think I was training for the Olympics. And I lost all the weight and I kept going to the gym. And one day the coach was like, well, you're in better shape than most of the fighters. Do you want to spar? And I was like, oh, my mom's not going to let me spar. And by and the way, how old were you? 16. Okay. And when I said my mom wasn't going to let me spar, everyone laughed. I was like, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'll get my mouthpiece. <laughs> and I kind of got cornered into sparring. And I was so afraid to get hit. My only thought process is what can I do to not be hit? So I started to develop this defense. And most people think boxing is hit and not get hit. I thought boxing was not get hit and if possible, hit. That's the way I looked at it. And I realized really quickly that mentally, I was smarter than most people when it came to boxing IQ in the ring. I wasn't stronger. I wasn't faster. There was nothing special about me other than I can get into people's minds. And uh, I realized within the first year of competing, first of all, uh, I was very confident. Like I, I didn't have any confidence. And as soon as I lost the weight, I had tricked myself in becoming a confident person by uh, every day while I was walking to the gym, I would constantly tell myself about how amazing I am because no one else was telling me I was amazing. So I felt like the only person who had to tell me was myself. Uh, I since then found out said, about positive affirmations. I say, essentially, you say that you tricked yourself. And my mind went, you trained yourself that way. And yeah. I thought, that, I thought that's kind of, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is I tricked myself and we often trick ourselves into being not confident. Yes. Because I know many fighters who are in better, who they'd be in better shape than I am. They trained harder than I did and they did everything that I did. But when it comes to fight time, they're not sure if they're going to win. So they have something called fear of fatigue. It's when a fighter is afraid to give his all in the ring because if he gives his all and he gets tired, he's going to lose. So he tries to save a little more in his tank. So he doesn't have the confidence to actually give it his all or give it her all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I never wanted to suffer with that. It bothered some people that I, I had the confidence that I had, but uh, never really bothered me much. Okay. So once you got into this growing up as a child, even before you got to boxing, and then once you got in towards boxing, who were your idols? Uh, well, First of all, I, I didn't realize, and just a side note about this before I answer that question, I was I didn't realize how terrified I was all the time before I started boxing. I had social anxiety, and I always thought I was getting bullied so much, and I realized that I was so anxious that if someone looked at me the wrong way, I, I shuddered down, I'd look at the ground, and if some you know kids make yeah. jokes about each other and they move on with their day, Anytime someone made a joke to me, it didn't bounce off me, it just stuck with me. And then when I got to boxing, uh, my senior year, my parents moved me to Florida. And when I moved to Florida from New York, it was this aha moment for me because for the first time in my life, I got to start over fresh. So there was this really cool kid in my high school that I looked up. I thought he was the coolest kid in the world. I want to be just like him. When I moved to Florida, I pretended I was him. And the kids, and I, anything he would say in school, I would say, and everyone bought the confidence because they didn't know who I was. And I started to go to the gym in Florida and I was just the most confident. I was bulletproof. 
And I was down in Florida for a few months and I went to this high school for a few months. And I was this whole confident, I was a whole completely different person. I used to go by the name Cameron. I changed it to Cam. I was a whole new person. And then I moved back to finish my high school, my, my senior year in high school. And when I got back to New York, instantly I shelled up to the old person I used to be. Wow. Because everyone there knew me as who I used to be. And I was afraid to let them see that I changed. Wow. Okay. So let's now talk about your idols. Uh, idol wise, uh, idol wise, uh, I know, and has nothing to do with boxing. Right. But Ali. Okay. And really, yeah, just not for, you know, when you said the boxing. confidence thing, that's where my mind went getting inside the mind. I mean, I don't think there was anybody better to get inside your mind. I mean, you see football players and you see bad Dennis Rodman, maybe. Um, <laughs> Love Dennis Rodman. Yeah. I mean, he can get inside your mind. So, but when you were talking about that, my mind went to Ali, of course. So once you got into boxing, who were your boxing idols? Uh, Emmanuel Augustus. And no, not a lot of people know him. He's my favorite fighter ever. Okay. He's, uh, he's unorthodox. He's awkward. He's big on defense. And he goes by the name, the drunken master. Cause he, he box like a drunken style. He, just kind of moves around. He has a right. weird boxing style. He enjoys himself so much, but he has a, a terrible boxing record because he, he takes fights on last moment. He doesn't care about his record. He gives it his all and he wins a lot of times, but the judges don't give him the decision because he's so unconventional, but he refused to change his style. Okay. Fascinating. Now let's talk about this. I mentioned this in the bio when you're open. You're in a ring with another person. You're fighting. It's an individual sport. But it's not. I mean, we know you've got coaches. You've got people in your corner and everything else. Talk to me about how boxing is a team sport. Uh, first of all, boxing, I... I like the fact that boxing, I thought boxing wasn't a team sport and that's why I liked it. And I tried my hardest to make it not a team sport uh, because I wanted the whole individual aspect of it. But there's no way to getting around that boxing is a team sport because even with training for my fights, you can hit the bag, but it's more beneficial to hit the mitts. You can't hit the mitts by yourself. You need a coach to hold the mitts. Uh, when you're training for a fight, one of the big aspects of it is sparring. Mm -hmm. So when you think about sparring, let's say you spar three or four times a week at a certain time, you need to coordinate with another boxer to make sure that they're there at that time and they're your teammate because they're there to work to help you get better. So there are guys that I spar with, like if I'm fighting a left-handed guy, I would have to call up one of my left-handed heavyweight friends and ask them to spar with me so I can help prepare. And then I have to ask my, that, my, my, my sparring partner, to emulate the guy I'm fighting. So start to box like him. So he has to adapt to style for my opponent. Now that's my teammate that just right. even training, you get to yeah. fight who wraps your hands. It's your coach who works your corner. It's your coach who gives you water in between rounds. It's your coach. If you're, if your uh, shoelaces get untied in, in a fight, which it happens, who ties that It's your coach who gives you advice. It's your coach. And you don't just have one coach. You have a, a sparring coach. You have a 
uh, head coach. You might have a strength and conditioning coach, coach. lifting. Like there's so many different parts that come. it's, I get to hold the belt, but I do very minimum when it comes, when it comes, when it's in, compared to everything that goes on. But you've got hey. right here. Oh, that's what, what, what you bring to the table is what you've learned in the, in the, uh, from coaches, but then you have to apply it. One of my favorite quotes is knowledge is not power without application. So you've now taken the knowledge and have started to apply it by using your knowledge and using your brain. And that's, yeah. that's what starts to build it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, great Wilmot Rudolph even said, uh, wh whatever we do in life, someone else helps us, you know, and that's, that's so powerful. We've got to start thinking. And one of the things that impressed me with what you just said, and this is something I want to make sure we, our listeners pick up on. You said, I, if I, my shoe needs tying, I would ask for help. If I need this, I ask for help. If I, I need to ask a sparring partner for help, whatever it is, you asked for help. And that's key because one of the biggest challenges a lot of people have in business is the fear of asking for help that they will look weak. You are one of the, the winningest boxer, I believe you said in the bio, in USA history. And as the winningest, you asked for help. Talk to me about that. How was that hard to swallow? Uh, actually, it, it's funny, sir. So when I, when I first started my career, uh, I just joined the boxing gym for the purpose of losing weight. I right. made it clear that I had no interest in boxing. So I would go to the gym when it opened and I'd work out. The coaches didn't spend any time with me because they knew I wasn't, I just wanted to hit the bag and jump rope. So when it was time to throw punches and hit the bag, I had to look at what other fighters were doing because no one showed me. And I even learned from, and I consider my teammates, even though we didn't speak, I would see a guy hit the bag and I would see, because a lot of guys where they hit the bag, they'll hit the bag low, like where, where a person's body is because it's easier. But to punch the bag higher, it's harder. Right. So what I would do is I would walk up to the bag and I would touch my forehead on it to see where the sweat stain is. And that's the level I would have to punch at. So I started to teach myself these things about boxing. So if you ever saw me fight, it's very awkward because I developed my own style. I made it up because I didn't know what I was doing. Now, well, there's that. And then also you're a soft, softball. Yeah. So you're a lefty and, and you know, population wise, there's not a whole lot of softball fighters. So if you're in the gym watching other people, they're righties and you've got to try and turn that in your head. Yeah. And uh, no one likes southpaws. I, I don't like them. Like you, you just, you hate to fight them. Uh, but uh, so with the teammate part of it, I would look at everyone else around me and even though they're my teammates, I look at them as my, even though my competition, I look at them as my teammates. Because mm -hmm. if, I'm, if I'm hitting the bag and there's a guy hitting the bag and on the other side of the gym and I hear him throw a three punch combination, well, I'm going to throw a four punch combination. If I hear him throw a five punch combination, I'm going to throw a six punch combination. So using my, the boxers around me helped me build my momentum up and build my stamina. Uh, but the thing with coaches is, they can see things from outside the ring that I can't see. Mm -hmm. They have a perspective that I don't have. And they can bring that to you and give it, give that perspective to you in the, in the middle of a fight. Yeah. Okay. 
let's take it now. How many fights did you win? What's your uh, What's your record? Let's go there. Let's go to the Let's go to the guts here. What's the record? Uh, about three three hundred fifty wins and uh, forty one losses. Wow. Now, one of the things we talked about offline was where it really got to be a team sport for you was when you became captain of the USA team. Yeah. What was that, that like? That was, uh, so I, I knew, I knew when I got into boxing, I essentially started coaching myself. Uh, and I would still, if I, so after I won nationals, I had, uh, in 2008, uh, I got a random call from someone I never heard before by the name of John Brown, the most common name in the world. And he asked me to come to Kansas city to spar with this fighter for a week. And I'd never been on a plane before. So I was excited. So I, I just said, yes, I didn't know who this man was. I didn't know who his fighter was. I didn't know where I would be staying. So I, I flew to Kansas city. I started sparring and the guy owned have you ever heard of ringside the boxing equipment company i think so yeah i got ringside everlast so the guy okay, who everlast, owns that, of course so the guy who owns that is the guy who brought me out to spar and he let me work in his warehouse uh to pick orders to, for shipments while i was training for the week now i've been working at waffle house in florida and i took all my vacation time at waffle house but making like ten dollars an hour off the books for me during that time was i was like a millionaire i felt like came back to Florida after the, the six days and he invited me back for a month. So I just quit my job at Waffle House because they're not going to give me a month off. And I went to Kansas City and I started to started to uh, train and pick orders. Mm -hmm. And then I moved back. And I, after the month, I came back to, Can uh, to Florida and my coach heard that I lost my job and reached out to me and said, hey, if you ever need a job, you have one here in Kansas City. I was like, great, I need a job. Book me a flight. <laughs> and on three days notice, I picked up all my stuff and moved to Kansas City. And that's and where my, you are today. That's where I am today. My coach asked me a very specific question when I got there. He says, what do you need to win? And I said, well, I just need to get to the fights because I know I could win. I just couldn't afford to fly or get to the fights. And he says, what else do you need? I said, you didn't hear me. I said, I just need to get to anything else I can do on my own. I just need to get to the fights. So he said he'd pay for my my hotel and my flights and everything. Uh, so I would I would book my flight. Let's say there's a, a national championships in Colorado Springs. I'd book my flight to Colorado, book my hotel. I'd show up to nationals, register myself uh, for, for my fights. I would wrap my own hands. I would warm myself up and I would ask a random person in the audience to work my corner. Just, just give me water in between rounds. That's all I need. And... I would win Monday because you in nationals you you fight consecutive days. It's one loss and you lose. So I fight Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I win all five days. My coach, John Brown, flies in on Saturday for the finals. He works my corner. We take a picture. He asks me if there's anything I need. So I just need to be able to get to the next fight. And that's all I needed from our relationship. Now I built my career coaching myself, essentially. And then after I became the number one boxer in the country and I'm on the USA national boxing team, I realized I like doing things my way. And I, when you're by yourself, you're a leader because you're leading what you're doing. Right. You're choosing your players. You're choosing your teammates for the sparring partners and whatever you need to be done. You're getting the help that you need to do and you're asking for it. So that's a team player, but it's now you're stepping into a leader role. 
yeah. So after I, I became captain of the USA national boxing team and I only put, I didn't even vote myself as captain. It's just that everyone knew that I always have the best interest of the fighters in, in mind and I don't mind confrontation. So if a coach has, if, if someone has an issue with a coach, I, I had a, uh, so ex perfect example, uh, when, when, the, when the female fighters get their period, they, they retain water and they weigh a little bit more. And we have to do these weigh-ins right. uh, every morning. And some of these girls, they'll be overweight and they'll try to get these girls in trouble for, for being overweight because you're supposed to be within your, your, your weight range before a fight. I brought this issue to the coaches as my issue. I let them know I have menstrual issues and we need to stop penalizing our athletes because of the weight issue. Because anytime an athlete had a problem, I brought it to the coaches as my own personal problem. Because everyone on, on the team was kind of afraid to let the coaches know how they felt. Being the fact that I was so outspoken, uh, I kind of just, they, they pushed me into the leadership role. Okay. And this is when I realized that I couldn't do everything the way I wanted to do things all the time, because now that I'm on a team, uh, it, things as simple as choosing where we're going to eat. I've never had to argue with me about where we're going to go eat, <laughs> but when you're on a team, you have to take other things into account. Uh, and you have to realize maybe, maybe if you're on a, on a team run and the slowest guy on the team, uh, I would stick, stick around and wait for that person or I'll run slow behind with that person. So they're not the last person. We're the last person. Mm -hmm. So there's just small things like that, that I've picked up as a leader. And I'm realizing how applicable this is to the corporate world. Now that yeah. I've transitioned from boxing into it. It's interesting. You talked about it with the slowest runner, as you were saying that my mind's going to Dr. Stephen Covey and his book, the seven habits of highly effective people back in the eighties, and he talked about the limiting steps. You know, what is your limiting factor? What is, what is your thing that's slowing you down? In that case, it was the slowest runner. If it's something else, you pull back to be able to work with that person. And that was a classic example of demonstrating what Dr. Covey talked about. And that was even before you were born. So there. <laughs> <laughs> so um, your career, when did you stop fighting? Uh March, 2020. Gee, was there something that happened then to help you stop fighting? Yeah, I think it was the NBA got canceled. That's when I was like, Hey, you know, what? I'm done with my career. If LeBron James isn't playing. I'm not fighting. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, actually. So I won my first national championship in 2008. I qualified for the 2008 Olympic trials. Right. And I was so, I told everyone about it. I mean, I was telling everyone on MySpace about this. And then By, uh, we heard that MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, made it to, I, I lost the first day at the Olympic trials. It was, I was upset. A lot of boxers that lost in Olympic trials, they quit. I continued boxing and won nationals in 2008. And being the number one boxer, I'm like, well, I have the momentum. I'm not going to lose this. So I won nationals in 2009, 2010, 2011. In 2012, I qualified for the uh, Olympic trials and I won the 2012 Olympic trials and I became not the third, not the second, but the first boxer in the United States history to be suspended and kicked off the Olympic team for not filling out paperwork. So you didn't go to London? No, didn't get to go to London. And uh, it wasn't even the fact that I didn't fill out paperwork. I left the country to fight in the qualifying tournament for the Olympics 
and it was in Azerbaijan. And uh, the drug testing agency showed up to Kansas, Kansas City to randomly drug test me. I forgot to send an email to tell them I was leaving the country. And although the same drug testing agency uh, tested me in Azerbaijan that same week and I tested negative to fight in the tournament, a missed drug test is still a positive drug test. I got suspended for a positive drug test. Wow. Uh, I got the minimum sentencing because uh, I tested negative that same week and they knew I wasn't. But long story short is I didn't get to go to the London Games. Okay. Uh, heartbreaking. So then you go back to Nationals. No, no. Uh, suspended for a year. I can't even go back to Nationals. Uh, oh, I wow. just had a, a year off. Uh, I dropped out of college for boxing. I didn't have a backup plan, didn't have any skills, didn't have any certifications, didn't have any way of making money. Uh, also, my my house, my car, my food, everything was sponsorships. I lost everything. I was essentially homeless the day that happened. Uh, sponsors told me not to come back to the house in LA. They'll just ship my my suitcases wherever I need them. Uh, so that's at, a, at a, a few bad months of depression, weight gain, drugs, alcohol, and uh, then weirdly lost a bet and had to be vegan for 28 days. And uh, the the vegan diet also entails sobriety. So this is what got me sober during my, during that time in my life and uh, decided I, I lost 32 pounds in 28 days. I started eating healthier, became a more positive person. I realized I didn't want to be, be a quitter. So uh, I decided to return to boxing, but if I was going to do it, I was going to be a little bit dramatic with it because I'm a little flamboyant in my ways. So I decided nah, to legally change me. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to legally change my name to awesome. Uh, because if I was going to return, I was going to be a positive person because I didn't like the person that I became. Uh, so I wanted to be a whole new person. So I symbolically killed off my old, killed off the old me uh, on my half birthday. So I celebrate two birthdays a year. On February 16th, we celebrate the birth of Cam F. Awesome. And on August 16th, we mourn the death of Lenroy Thompson Jr. Okay. All right. You go back into boxing. Yes. That uh, was when? What year was that? 2013. So after a year suspension, I returned back to boxing, okay. uh, reclaimed my number one spot in the country, uh, regained my title of captain, and won nationals in 2013, 14, 15. Then 2016, again, qualified for the Olympic trials, won the Olympic trials to go to the Rio Olympics. Rio. And lost an international qualification and didn't get to get up to Rio Games. Oh, man. Resilience though, this is the whole, I, and I speak of resilience. So I decided I need to come up with a new plan. What I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna work on my speaking career as I box. Now, one of the things that athletes don't realize is your relevancy as an athlete dries up faster than the sweat on your jersey on the last game. Because these athletes, America, we have a fascination with athletes and us athletes, we think, well, they love us. The world loves me. They've always loved me because I've always played sports. So when I'm done playing with playing sports, they'll love me as well. They won't. No. In 2016, I realized I wouldn't get the doors opened that I had opened before if I wasn't boxing. So to get these doors opened, I won nationals again. I want to continue being number one boxer in the country. But this time uh, I was going to live in a van and travel around the country while training for the Olympics, I would be speaking at schools during the week, doing comedy on the weekends at nights and emceeing festivals on the weekends uh, and help build my speaking business as I 
promoted my boxing career. Uh, and I did that for four years, traveling around, training for the Olympics. And then uh, I, I was supposed to fight for USA, but if I, were to, if I were to go live at the Olympic Training Center, they wouldn't let me continue speaking. They don't let you work while you train. So found a loophole. My dad's from Trinidad. So uh, I became a dual citizen, flew to Trinidad, became a citizen of their country, fought in their Olympic trials, won by knockout, and was in Dallas training for the 2020 Olympics when, when the pandemic canceled. happened. Yeah. So 2008, lost. 2012, won, suspended. 2016, won, but lost. 2020, won, but it was canceled. Resilience is the name of the game with whatever we do. And you've proven that. Today, you've now gotten into the speaking side of things. You now speak to groups about cultural diversity. And I like how you put this, um, diversity competence, and you're working in a specific arena on that. So talk to us about that. How did you get into that aspect of it? Uh, well, it was actually, I would, when George Floyd was murdered uh, in 2020, I was in Portland, Oregon, and there were people marching everywhere. And I'm, I, I shared about my social anxiety. I'm good on a stage. I'm good in a boxing ring, but around too many people, I shut down. Mm -hmm. uh, so wasn't much of, of a marcher. So I decided before I even go march, I'm going to go educate myself. And I did a lot of reading, finding out what are the issues for, what are we marching for? And I, I wanted to educate myself properly and thoroughly. And there's some information I realized that would be, uh, that, that was mind blowing to me. So 70% of educators are white females, uh, but our students aren't all white females. There's a lack of representation in education. So I started to talk to educators, because I'm, I'm, I was still a youth speaker, so I, but I started leading professional development workshops for educators to talk about culture and help them better communicate with their students. Right. In the state of Missouri, less than 1% of educators are black males. And I've never had a black male teacher growing up. Uh, really? So there's a lack of representation there. So I, uh, I started leading these, these workshops and, and I'm speaking on diversity, I'm speaking on culture because I've traveled to over 30 countries as captain of the USA national team. And for every country like Azerbaijan, that was a fascinating country. You have to learn the do's and the don'ts about that country. As captain, I would have to Google, learn the do's and don'ts, and then relay that message to the team. Now, I've done this in over 30 countries. I didn't realize that I was learning the culture of all these different countries. I'm just I'm an encyclopedia of, of sometimes useless information, but information nevertheless. And I was leading all of these workshops with, with educators and they were so, un not just the white ones, black, Asian, Hispanic, everyone's so uncomfortable around the conversation of power, culture, privilege, and race. And I realized why. I realized why all these educated adults were so uncomfortable. It was because okay. no one spoke to them when they were children. Probably, yeah. Like even like I'm in, I'm in Kansas, there, there's sometimes where uh, uh, maybe a four or five-year-old sees me in Walmart and it says, mommy, mommy, it's a black man. And, or my mommy, he's black. And the mom is like, shh, shh, don't shh, and shames the kid. Like, but I am black. The kid's innocent. But what happens is the kid's now totally afraid and shunned about noticing race, color, or anything like that. So I started going to schools to talk about culture and talk about our cultural differences. 
and how sometimes our cultural differences clash. Uh, for example, in Azerbaijan, we had our, our team guide. Every country we go to, we have a team guide that like keeps us safe and everything like that. Uh, our guy's name was Fico. Fico learned all of his English from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He sounded like a black dude from the <laughs> 80s, straight up. And he had a million dollar smile. He loved rap music. And as soon as he sees you, he starts rapping songs to you and he wants you to rap back. He is great energy. And his job is to make sure we're safe. So we had a day off from training in Azerbaijan. We're at the hotel. Me and a few teammates leave the hotel and we go into a cab. And then he runs out, grabs us out of the cab and lets us know. They know we're not from here. They'll probably take us to the middle of nowhere and rob us. So he calls his friend to give us a ride to the, a safe ride to the mall for free. Thank you, Fico. But to show him, I appreciate him. As I'm getting into his friend's car, I shake his hand and I slip him a few minutes, a few of their dollars. And Fico waited around for me the whole day to return from the mall and brought me to a back room, put the money on the table and asked me if I respect him as a man, why would I do such a thing? Could you guess what I did? Not really. I'm thinking you broke down and cried. No, I, no, I, I gave him a tip. Oh, no, I, I knew you him. gave him a tip early. No, no, that, that, that yeah. I knew. But when yeah. he gives, I, then he was giving it back to you. Yeah. Is what I, uh, is what I was thinking you cried. Oh, no, he, he was upset. Yeah. He was I pissed. He was he, giving it back. Okay. No, he was pissed because uh, in their culture, now intent versus impact, my intent of that statement Mm -hmm. because a lot, we have intent versus impact and my intentions yes. was to give him money to show him like i'm from america we're good people i'm an ambassador for the u.s i want you to know i'm, I'm grateful mm -hmm. but the impact of my actions unknowing to me was yeah. i was saying i'm you're, this you're... rich american i'm doing well in life here's some scraps for you and your peasant family pico yeah and of course no 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 that wasn't my intentions but i've learned through my travels and making these mistakes that Culture means a way of life. There's no right or wrong way of life, but there are different ways of life. Right. And if I do disrespect someone or I do offend someone, I address the impact that I made on them before right. I even begin to address the, in my intentions. Right. So when he comes to you and waits around all day, I take it he tries to give you the money back? Oh, yeah. How did that yeah. make you feel? I felt disgusting. I felt because mm -hmm. I didn't, I, I belittled him. He was, he, he, I didn't see him without a smile. And then for the first time, he was visibly upset. He was yeah. disrespected and I felt so little. And that's where I was saying, I thought you might've cried a little bit like, wow, I didn't mean to do that. My intent was not that. And you might've gotten upset. That's where I was going with the cry factor. Oh, oh, but crazy thing. It didn't hit me until years later about how disrespectful that interaction was. Mm. I didn't, I I didn't get it. Now I look back and I'm like, oh, and of course, in the moment, I'm telling my intent. I'm like, no, 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 in America. And first of all, he didn't even know what tip was. Right. He, he, I was like, tip, it's a, a thank you. He says, oh, you mean gratuity? I was like, yes, 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 gratuity. Because he knew that word. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, he says, we don't do that here. Now go back and let your team know they shouldn't do that here. It's very disrespectful. So I had to go back to the team and say, hey, guys, uh, I don't know if you guys have been tipping. And I, I let the team know, no more tipping. We left Azerbaijan and went to England. And we ate at a pizza hut every night we were in England because it was attached to the hotel. And after about the fourth or fifth day, our waitress, sweet as ever, 
we had the same waitress every night. She came up to us. She says, do you guys not tip in America? <laughs> so frustrating. But I'm, I'm learning they're diff- each place has a different every culture, place a different, different way of life. And yeah. you have to respect those cultures. We've got to respect them. So you're speaking today on how to respect the different cultures, not just when people here in this country think of diversity and inclusion, they immediately go to the race category. Okay. Yet there's so much more to it than that. What do you talk about? And you're talking to kids in school, you're speaking to colleges, you know, what do you speak about getting people engaged and included? Uh, So, and and I speak, I started speaking to adults and I brought it back to children, but I speak to everyone of all ages, because if you connect with different people, Mm -hmm. you're going to need to learn cultural competence. And this isn't like it was maybe 30, 40 years ago. The world is becoming more and more inclusive. So I have some of these issues with schools where I tell schools the topics I speak on and I say, well, 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 we're a predominantly homogenous school or it's a school of one race mostly. So we don't have uh, any issues around diversity. I said, yeah, not yet. Aren't you preparing these kids for life? For the future. Do you think what happens when they go to college and their roommates from Nepal? Like if they've never learned to communicate with people of different cultures and they're never even open to the idea, they're going to be shell-shocked when they leave school. Yeah. So when you're going to one of these homogenous schools and you're speaking to the, uh, the powers that be, the, the principals, the, the educators in there about what you want to do, how do they take that? Uh, so weirdly, no, I, I was making flyers. No school would book me. Uh, <laughs> and I was speaking about this for a while. And then January 6th happened yep. of last year. Okay. January 7th, I booked like 13. They realized like, oh, this issue needs to be spoken about. And the thing is they were expecting me to come in and speak about race and speak. No, it's, I'm speaking about communication. I'm speaking about humans. Yeah. I'm speaking about culture. Uh, but I think people are so afraid and people are afraid of the word racist. People are so afraid. They think, they think people can be racist. People can't be racist. Actions can be racist. Thoughts can be racist. But if you do something, we all make, I've said something that could be deemed racist before. When I speak on the intent versus impact, I speak on this one specific book, 35 dumb things well-intended people say. 35 things, uh, surprising things we say that widen the diversity gap. Now, I've put my foot in my mouth in over 30 countries, but a lot here in the United States. I speak about when you put yourself, when, when you put your foot in your mouth, it's not the end of the world. Everyone's so afraid to say the wrong thing that they stop saying things. People stop communicating with each other because they're, being they're so concerned about being politically correct that they're afraid to communicate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And we've got to open those dialogues. Those dialogues have to be open about everything. So today, leadership is all about that. We've got to make sure that we've got a society that is more inclusive than exclusive. And what, what are some advice that you would give a leader today about being more inclusive in everything? with different diversities, different cultures, different aspects, different religions. Uh, I would say the number one thing uh, for a leader is that representation matters. So I've been working with, with, 
with a few different businesses. And they're one of the issues that one of these companies were having is they're looking to, they're trying to raise retention of their, uh, of people of color in their business because people are quitting. And, and I said, well, are there any, does, does it show profits that they'll move up in this company? Is there anyone in leadership positions that look like them? Cause if not, they feel like they're wasting their time. And they said, oh, actually we have one black, we have one black uh, manager and they were telling me about this and he's, and they're telling us a great guy and he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he loves uh, bluegrass and she's telling me about, he's a bluegrass player. And, and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Your one black employee is not of the black culture. He's bluegrass. I couldn't name a bluegrass singer. So that's not someone that I could personally relate to. Mm-hmm. So representation matters and not just the color of your skin, but religion, culture, and all yeah. different backgrounds. And it's important to make sure that your leadership reflects the values you want in your company. Okay. So let's look at a frontline leader of a team of maybe six to 10 people. What can that one leader do on that particular team? If, again, inclusion and bringing it in. I get that. What can that leader do? Uh, I mean, in specific, uh, so let's say it's. As far as how they uh, lead, how they're working with people, uh, because let's face it, while they may have a team, they often are providing a level of service, whether it's an internal service or an external service, something of that direction. And they're having interactions with other groups. What can my team do? What can I, as the leader of that team do to be able to bring more cultural awareness to people? I would say, listen to suggestions in more than a check a box way. Uh, okay, wait a minute. I want you to say that again, because I, I love the way you just said that. Listen for suggestions in more than a check a box kind of way. Yes. That's powerful. Yes. Yeah. There's so many people say, oh, I did that. It's off my to-do list. I, I see a lot of companies, they, they, they black their, their Instagram picture out for that one day for like Black Lives Matter. Like, and all these companies are doing Black History Month sales and all this. But if you actually want to show Do it great leadership and sh- if you want to show your transparency and show that you actually care, you should be able to post a picture of your board of directors with no shame. Yeah. 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 Because we, we all talk about inclusion and these companies are promoting inclusion, but at the top level, are the, is it diverse at the top level or is it just diversity at the incoming level? Yeah. What do you say to people who want to hire the right best person for the job and then there is no one of a cultural or racial diversity that fits that should they just hire somebody for that purpose or not uh i would say and i've heard this that discussion a lot uh sometimes more times than not it's just a cop-out uh Mm -hmm. if 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 name a profession because there are people, there are recruiters out there who are specifically out there looking for, for mm-hmm. talent. There are talent out there, but you have to look for it. It, it just won't yeah, fall you, in your you, lap. Sometimes you got to go look for it and not wait for it to fall in your lap. Yes. Okay. Yes. And if and if 
and of course there's maybe 13% of, of speaking about black people, 13% of uh, people in America are black. So let's say 70% is white. If you threw a dart, you might randomly hit a white person first, but you should be able to do your due diligence if you're look, if, if yeah. you value what diversity offers for your business, mm -hmm. you'll go that extra mile. And in the long run, it's going to help you out. Yeah, it's going to. John Kennedy said a rising tide raises all ships. And when we bring the team together and we work together as a group, then the whole team starts to grow. And that's the power in what we're talking about. And Cam, you're, you're doing a lot of great stuff with the schools, with businesses today. What's one thing that you would like to leave everybody with as we get ready to wrap up today's podcast? Uh, if you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. Wow, there we are again. <laughs> Say that one again. I, I want to, I, I'm not sure I grasped all that. I loved it, but I'm not sure I grasped it. If you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. So that showcases my entire life. It's my own personal quote. It's what I live by. Mm -hmm. 2008 lost in the Olympic trials, 2012 lost in the Olympic trials, 2016 didn't go to the Olympic trials, 2020 didn't go to the Olympic trials. Most of my adult life, my entire adult life, I've been chasing one dream. Now, I didn't get to go to the Olympics, but I am the winningest boxer in United States history. Now, we've always heard, we've heard the, the Michael quote, uh, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. It's actually Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> I was, uh, it was a Michael, but it was Michael Scott. I was, I was yeah. sliding in for Michael Scott. That's why I call it a Michael quote. Uh, okay. Michael Scott's quote is, uh, you, you miss hundred percent of shots the you shots don't take. take, but an important thing that I've realized in the very beginning, no one checks for field goal percentage when you're a champion. No, no. So you can fail as many times as you want. As long as you get back up. Yeah. Yeah. Vince Lombardi said, it's not whether you get knocked down. It's whether you get back up. And my quote is, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's how fast you get back up. Like that. Yeah. I like that. Cam F. Awesome. It has been a pleasure to have you on the Teamwork Advantage. The energy level you bring is just amazing. I mean, I'm charged up right now. Okay. So we're ready to roll. Um, right. How can people find you if they want to check in with you and find you? What's your social media? What's the best way to reach you? Uh, at Cam F Awesome, C A M F A W E S O M E on all platforms Twitter, okay. TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Okay. Folks, the Teamwork Advantage. We bring you ideas, and Cam has shared some with you today that you can actually start to implement tomorrow in your personal life as well as your business life. You know, until next week, remember having a good day is just being average. When you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, and you follow Cam F. Awesome's ideas, you are not average. So be sure to take today and make it an excellent and exceptional day. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.